Good morning, great men and women of God. It's funny, I appreciate Jonathan doing that this morning, and you're right, I would have told you not to do it if you had told me you're doing that. But uh, thinking about 10 years, it's, it's crazy to believe 10 years have passed for me. Uh, when I came here fresh out of high school, uh, just uh, excited about life, and uh, this job ages you, though, pretty, pretty rough. Um, you know what's fun about pastoring Pulpit Rock? Everything is fun. The most fun to me is that you will go wherever Jesus goes. I saw this 10 years and four months ago when, for the very first time, Jessica and I were visiting Pulpit Rock uh, with some family. And so we hey, let's go check that church Pulpit Rock out. And it was something called Porn Sunday at Pulpit Rock. And I was really curious, like, are they for it or against? Like, where were they going to land on this issue? And I remember my wife, uh, I remember we sat there and we heard about a church that, that talked about people in a way I had not, was not used to people being talked about in churches. In fact, my wife bought a t-shirt that says, Jesus loves porn stars. And she wore it back home. And one of her kids asked her what it meant. She looked at me and I said, you're, no, you're <laughs> You wore it, but we wore it back into Texas, and, and again, there's a, uh, that's a true statement, but it's not a statement people go, but what we realized was if Jesus was willing to go there, we'd go there, and this church for over 69 years since it started has been that kind of church, and it didn't matter if Jesus said, hey, we're going to move and go to a new building, okay, we'll go, or Jesus said, hey, we're going to do this, okay, we'll do that. doesn't matter if, if, if Jesus is going to a, a brothel in, in uh, Thailand and sitting across the table from a young girl and, and buying drinks for people at the table. If Jesus goes there, we go there too. I've loved that. It is so fun to do that. And one of the things that's unique about here, and if you're kind of new to this, is that we have a lot of people who come from a lot of different backgrounds. And there's a heart that I, I see among people that come here, and it's this. Hey, I was always taught this, but, but I'm wondering if it could be different. And that's one of the things that Jesus does also. In fact, when he showed up on the scene... One of the most infuriating things must have been for the religious leaders is that Jesus would often say this, your religious leaders have told you this, but I tell you this is how the Father is. And I'm sure they were so frustrated because they were losing their power and control, and he would shake things up. And this is the kind of church that says, whoa, 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 let's hear what he has to say. And this is a church that says, look, if Jesus will go somewhere, even if it's somewhere that's different than maybe the way I was brought up or my denomination or my background or my nationality or whatever, I, I just want to know this question, where is Jesus going? That's where I want to go. That's what makes this place a fun church. One of the things we feel like as leaders, we've been talking about this for a while, is for the next three or four weeks, Jesus wants to take us to some uncomfortable places. And so we want to follow him in that. We don't have all the answers for every church, and we don't have all the answers for everyone, but we know what God's calling us to here. So wanna, that's a little preview. This is where we're going. We're going to do a, start a new series today called Her. Let me tell you why we're talking about that. When I first met my wife uh, 20 years ago, uh, so again, I was uh, 10 years old, out of high school, uh, she was on staff at a church working with student ministry. And I remember being so attracted to her strong leadership and her passion. And we get together, we talk about ministry, we talk about God and kingdom and theology. And, and she would tell me I was wrong. And I was like, hmm, I'm going to have to marry her to figure that out. And so I remember one conversation that we had, though, it has stuck with me for 20 years. She said, I have always felt like when God made me, 
he made a mistake because he didn't make me a boy. So I could do what I really wanted to do, be a pastor. I almost failed my ordination when I became a pastor. An ordination is where it's like a pastor final exam. You sit in a room with a bunch of people that are really smart, and they ask you theological questions, and I almost failed. And they told me I almost failed, and I almost failed for this point because they said, Thomas, what's your view on women in ministry? I said, they're awesome, and they should be doing it. And what about women being pastors? Yeah, of course. Oh, Thomas, so wrong. And I said, but wait a minute, we're in a denomination that every year has a huge missions offering named for a woman that while she was overseas was preaching, was witnessing, was discipling, was leading churches, was doing every single thing with men and women that a pastor would do. That's who she was, and we celebrate that. And that didn't go over well uh, in that moment. Recently, I was posting an article online. I was just bragging about some of the women leaders here at Pulpit Rock, and people were saying, oh, that's whatever. And one pastor from another state posted, but you don't have women pastors, do you? And I said, oh, yeah, we actually do. They're awesome. Somebody else posted and said "But to this pastor, but your church doesn't have women pastors at your church, does it? And he said, no, we stand on Scripture. And I was like, we, st we stand on Scripture, too. It's good. <laughs> wow. I mean, Jesus juke right there. And then my heart has been grieved and, and, and uh, trying to figure out, wrap my mind around this. Sometimes we feel like as a church, it's our job to always tell the culture things. But sometimes God is using what's happening around us to speak, speak to us. And I'm talking about the hashtag Me Too movement. Something is being said, and it's being said outside the church, and the church is giving crickets. We're taking stock of our culture. We're starting to see our culture in a new way. The culture is realizing, you know, this is a place where men have always had the power, and women, uh, men are considered the norm, and women are the lesser of the norm. And, and what's happening right now is a shift. It's, it's fundamental, where women are finding courage and a voice to speak up about some of the darkest parts of living in a world where men are in charge. And I think Jesus is going somewhere. I think he's leading something. I think he's saying something to the church. And so uh, over the next few weeks, I and some of our staff want to lead into these areas with you. So let me give you a preview of that. Today, I wanted to share, and I wanted to share the story of God through the women that he has empowered and honored and released. We're going to see that through Scripture. Next Sunday, I believe that Jesus has some things that he wants to say to Pulpit Rock Church about the kind of church we're going to be when it comes to issues of sexual harm against women. We're going to talk about that. The next Sunday, we're going to, so, I'm so thrilled, we have a special guest with us, Deb Hirsch, nationally recognized leader of churches, and she speaks and she writes. She has worked in the field of sexuality for over 25 years, and she is going to fix everything that I say over the next two weeks. And then we're praying about this idea of maybe getting um, Jonathan and I, getting our wives up on stage with us, because uh, that will work so well, and they'll have no downside to that whatsoever, <laughs> but to try to address some questions in conversation. So we're just kind of looking at that. But today, I just want to tell you a story, a story that is true, but we don't always hear it. It's a story that begins with the way God intended it to be. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, God created men and women to be equal. God created men and women both in his image. David Ekman asserts, God is stronger and more masculine than any man. 
And at the same time, he is more nurturing and feminine than any woman. Together, we bear this image. Moses relates this uh, story from God. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, we understand when it says God created man, he's not saying God created men. He's saying God created man, mankind, humans. That means both male and female created in the image of God. One is not superior. One is not inferior. They are different in the way that they bear the image, but they both equally bear this image. God goes on in the next verse and says, God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Basically, he's saying, I am equally giving you both the responsibility to fill this earth up. They have a lot of babies. Fill this planet up and then lead it well. Steward it. I am giving you, this is my world, but I'm giving you the responsibility as men and women together to shepherd and lead this thing. Now, that's Genesis 1. When we go to Genesis 2, Genesis 2 is actually a repeat of Genesis 1. It just gives us a little more different perspective and detail. And we see that after God had created Adam, he noticed something. He looked around and he said, every other thing I've created has a counterpart, but not Adam. That's not good. So verse 18 the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a what? You can say it out loud. What? A helper for, suitable for him. God didn't want Adam to lead this world on his own, so God gave him a helper. Now, when we see the word helper, we think of sidekick, right? We think of dad's working on the car, and little six-year-old Timmy comes out, and he wants to help. And the dad's like, okay, okay, uh, hold my screwdriver. Oh, wow, I'm helping. It seems like it's a lesser title. God himself throughout the Old Testament describes himself as a helper. God says, I am a helper. There's no way that can mean anything inferior. It's not a sidekick. In other words, woman that was created was not only Adam's complement, she was his completion. He was incomplete as an image bearer of God until she showed up. And now he got both. So one of my seminary professors, Dr. Sandra Glan, says this. She said, men and women are not the same, and it's because we're not the same that we lack something when we go it alone. Because we were made to need each other, male and female imaging God together. So together we must image God fully as we seek to nurture this generation and the next with none of us saying, I have no need of you. We do it together. So that's this world that God created, and it's perfect, and it's balanced, and it's got diversity and unity, and then we done messed it up. How? Well, the way we messed it up is that partners that were supposed to cooperate now compete. You know the story. The serpent approaches uh, Eve, this woman. Adam is standing right next to her. He's silent. He's not saying anything. He's not making any kind of leadership there. He's just standing there letting it happen. They both ate of the fruit. And although they were equal in their sin, they were different in their responses. It's interesting when you dive into that story. When God confronted the man, he shirked responsibility and blamed the woman. When God confronted the woman, she blamed a little bit, but she at least admitted, you know, I was deceived. And although they were equally at fault for what happened, there was a consequence to their sin. There's always a consequence. And the consequence came in the form of a curse. And so they were both equally guilty of what had happened, but the curse played itself out differently. Listen to this. For the woman, this call to be fruitful and multiply would now be accompanied with great pain. 
For men, this command to subdue the earth would now be accompanied by painful toil and suffering. Life is hard because we said no to God. But then something really interesting comes up is that even though they have some different expressions there, there is one thing they share together that makes life so difficult, and it's this, verse 16. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. In other words, God has created women, God created men, but God created women in a sense with a desire for intimacy. But what would happen is her husband would use that desire to make and keep her subordinate, to rule over him, her. This is the story of human history of the last 10,000 years. He will rule over you. Cooperators have become competitors. Now, for thousands of years, men have used the creation order. Well, you know, Adam was created first, so as a means to justify his power and the tools of his passions. But I want you to really see something here. This curse is not, part of cre- is not creation. This is a curse. This happens after the fall. The problems that we experience here come as a result of sin. This is not the way life was intended to be. Now, that's where we began. But here's something that's great about God. Every time we try to mess up his plans, he keeps moving forward. He says, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm doing something much bigger. And I'm going to take your mistakes, I'm going to take your sins, but I'm doing something much bigger. And the bigger thing that we see is he's building this kingdom, and all throughout the Bible we're seeing evidence of how he has called women to lead and serve alongside men. God himself is fighting against the curse. He will rule over you. That's the way it's been ever since. The Bible tells us how he has used women to build his kingdom. Now, let me ask you a question. I want you to think about some of the great prophets of the Bible. Throw some names out. Who are some of the great prophets of the Bible? Elijah. Elijah. Who's another one? Isaiah. Who else? Jeremiah. Who else? Alfredo? No, he was not one of the... (laughs) Daniel. Okay, name some great prophets. Okay, I didn't hear anybody yell out, Huldah. Let's just say that name together. Huldah. Who is Huldah? Someone do a Google search right now. Pull out a device, and I want you to Google Huldah. I want you to tell me what you discover. I'll wait. I have time. I'm good. There's literally no sporting event happening this afternoon, so I am no <laughs> rush. Huldah. Who's Huldah? A prophetess. In 2 Kings, we actually have a photo of her I wanted to show you. Here's Hulda, a striking woman. Uh, She's there hard at work. Now, Hulda was a prophetess. That's right. She's a prophet that King Josiah turned to. What happened was King Josiah, they had some guys excavating something, and they found these words, these scrolls, and they thought, are these God's words? Is this what we we might say the Bible, but they might say the Torah? What were these things that we found? And, And they brought them to the king, and he was like, I don't know. I'm just a king. We need a prophet. Now, see, there's a difference between a priest and a prophet. I'll explain real quick. A priest is someone who has the authority to go to God on behalf of people. Oh, you messed up. Oh, you did this. Okay, I'll go to God and talk about it with him. A prophet had a different job. A prophet was a someone who would come and talk to people from God. So God would tell the prophet something, Isaiah, and he would go and say, thus saith the Lord. And only prophets could say, thus saith the Lord. And so King uh, Josiah had a choice. He could have gone to Jeremiah, but he went to Huldah. And Huldah said, this is God's word. She became the first human to definitively declare 
that some writings were God's holy word. This is part of her legacy. And the people began to read that. They, okay, these are God's words. We should read these. And they began to read them and, and began to be moved. And all of a sudden, this revival broke out. And Huldah, as a prophet, became one of the most powerful sparks of revival we've ever seen. Why don't we hear about her? I don't know. Why don't we hear about some of the other heroes who have led, like Miriam, the prophet from Exodus, or Deborah, the prophet who was a prophet, and she also became a judge, meaning she became the most powerful leader in Israel, even though she was married. So her husband was the, the, the first dude. She was the judge. Or the mother of King Lemuel, who, who, whose words and advice became part of God's holy word in this peak of the book called Proverbs 31. And then there are women who led, even though they didn't have some kind of position. Women like Esther, whose bravery saved an entire nation, one woman stood up. Or Hannah, whose prayer we pray often as part of God's holy word. Or there were so many other women who served as prophetesses and civic leaders and judges, and they had wisdom and spiritual insight and leadership and courage, and because they were also bearing the image, God used them to carry out his purposes. Now, sometimes people say to me, well, yeah, of course, God called these women into ministry because not enough men were stepping up. No, God called these women into ministry because they are co-bearers of the image. And God's fighting. Now, this is just the first half of the Bible. We could stop there, but then we come to this thing called the gospel and this man named Jesus who broke every rule culturally and every taboo when it came to women. And there were some powerful women leading in ministry even before he was around, like Mary, the mother of Jesus, who announced to the world that Christ had been born. By the way, a friend of mine remarked, it is worth remembering that the incarnation of the Son of God, the most significant event in history, that we celebrate every Christmas began with a man believing a story that a woman told about sex. He believed her, and now we have a Messiah. There's a woman named Anna, the prophetess and evangelist who stood in the temple publicly speaking and prophesying about Jesus, or the many loyal women that followed Jesus on his ministry tours. They financed him. They were his friends. They followed him. Many male followers abandoned him at the cross, but it was the women that went. In fact, I want to share something with you. There is a foundational truth that undergirds everything that we do as Christians. In fact, these three words are the foundation and core of what we believe. If these three words are untrue, then everything we say and do as Christians is meaningless, is void, is worthless. The three words are Jesus is alive. Say that with me. Jesus is alive. That's the cornerstone of our authority and our leadership. And this is why we speak to this world. This is why we meet together. Jesus is alive. The most powerful three-word message ever delivered. So who is the first person God commissioned to carry this message to the world? Mary Magdalene. She came from the tomb and she got to be first. Someone came to me after the services and they said, well, I heard it was because the men uh, got lost and they were unwilling to ask for directions. And that's, <laughs> okay, but no. I love that. God says, I got three words that'll change the world. Mary, let's go. 
After the resurrection, it seemed like God even fought more against this, he will rule over you. And men and women began to partner in new ways. Men and women together were praying in the upper room when the Holy Spirit fell on them. And the prophecy that Joel made that was so confusing started to make sense when he said hundreds of years before, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. There are women we talked about last summer, like Lydia, the successful businesswoman who said, I'm going to use all my effort to start a church in my city called Philippi. Paul called many people his partners and fellow workers in ministry. And there were people like Timothy and Apollos and Mark, but he also called women his partners in ministry, like Iodia and Syntyche. Philip, one of the famous evangelists, had four daughters who were all prophetesses. Remember, that means they got to speak publicly and say, this is what God says. Priscilla, along with her assistant Aquila, discipled men like Apollos. Paul was always making sure to point out in his letters women like Phoebe, the deacon in her church, or Junia, of whom Paul says she was prominent among the apostles. In fact, Paul says, my favorite thing about Junia is that she believed the Messiah before even I did. Now, this was all happening, remember, in a first century culture that did not value women. This is why when we read the Bible, and we're like, oh, Jesus talked to this woman. That's not a big deal. It was a big deal. He's breaking taboos left and right. This is a culture that believed women were worthless. Women could not be taught. It was women's fault that we have all the evil in the world. Hey, who ate, who ate the fruit first? That's all I need to know. That's the problem. And they were excluded from many social and religious life this is a culture where religious leaders had a prayer. They would pray every day. Here's the prayer. Praise be God that he has not created me a Gentile, non-Jew. Praise be God that he has not created me a woman. Praise be God that he has not created me an ignoramus. And now let's sing. <laughs> this is the world. And so when you're reading the Gospels, just remember that some of the men that you are reading in these stories, they're praying this prayer, then they go out to lead, and then Jesus comes back and he's just challenging this. This is the culture that Jesus stepped into. Yet Jesus treated women with dignity and honor and included them in his ministry. So why don't we hear these stories? I think this is an opinion. I think it's an effect of the curse. I think he will try to rule over you. I think when men are always the ones telling the stories... Guess who gets to be the hero? Well, where does this story take us? So that's, that's kind of the story that we have in Scripture, but where does that begin to take us now and looking forward and addressing some of the issues that are starting to raise in our culture? I, I want to I address that in a second, but I'd like to just give you a moment to reflect with God. What we do at Pope Rock here is we put up a question and we invite you to take some time to talk with God about this question. And, I think this is an important question, just to begin to think about. No matter where you land on some of these things or what you've been taught, I'm more interested right now in you and God answering this question. What has shaped my view of how women serve and lead in God's kingdom? Is it a book? Is it a verse? Is it a pastor? Is it a Bible study? What, is it a conversation? What has shaped your view of how women serve and lead in God's kingdom? Let's take a moment and talk with God about that.
This is an interesting question. Um, I'll tell you this. I went to seminary because I was tired of seeing everybody like disagreeing about Scripture. And, it, well, these people say this, and these people say this, and so these people must be wrong if the, somebody's wrong. And I went to seminary because I thought if I went to seminary and I studied the Greek and I studied the Hebrew, there'd be no more disagreement. And I would say, well, but the Greek says, so you're wrong. Okay, it's so simple. Then I realized there were other people who also studied the Greek much more than me, and they disagreed with this, and they disagreed with this. And I, I began to, to realize that all of us, our spiritual journeys are shaped. And they're shaped by things other than Scripture. And anyone who says, well, I just want to stand on Scripture, well, good for you. What else has shaped your life? We're all shaped on this journey. It's one of the reasons why I think we need each other so that we can have good perspective. I think this is one of the reasons we see in Genesis that he says, I created a male and female. They both bear my image because if you only hear one, you get 50%. And we need to be in community. We need to be in groups. We need to be talking. But we need to acknowledge, hey, things have shaped my view. Might be my parents. Might be the, the college I went to, the, the church I grew up in. But things have shaped my view. It's not wrong to have different views. It is wrong to refuse to admit that your views have been shaped. That's what I appreciate with this church. We're ready to talk about some of those things. Now, I want to focus on a passage of Scripture because while, while we're celebrating all the times that women seem to lead in His kingdom, there are some times where it seems like the Bible says, says something against that. And in fact, this might be a verse that you're like, oh, you know what, I've got, oh, he's going to talk about it? Okay. Take, for example, Paul's words in 1 Timothy 2. Paul's writing a letter. In the middle of this letter, he says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling, likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but what, with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn to uh, learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, I know a lot of people today, it's popular to take a verse from Scripture and maybe paint it on a bunch of boards and hang it in your house. Maybe not this one. <laughs> Just an idea. I know some of you guys were thinking uh, Valentine's Day is coming up. Hey, baby. Uh, I want to I talk about this for a second just because of this. Uh, first of all, uh, leading does not mean preaching. I do not have the most important job in the church because I'm up here. This is just what I'm doing. Uh, and, and so the, the goal, the pinnacle of leadership is not to get on the pulpit. Uh, that there are women and men leading all on this church in ways, some ways we'll never, ever see. And they deserve a standing ovation. But my focus here is here because this is the passage most often quoted to deny women preaching and teaching ministries in the church. And they go, well, look, uh, a woman has to, to be quiet. She can't teach over a man. So uh, bing, bang, boom. What's, what's the problem? Now, it's unfortunate that this verse is chosen because it also is generally regarded as one of the most difficult New Testament texts to interpret. Now, I want to have an adult conversation with you right now. What that means is I want to say, hey, sometimes it's hard to understand Scripture, and this is why. First of all, we need to understand the context that certain commands were written in. We have to look behind specific local instances to find the universal timeless principles. For example, how many of you this week were faced with a dilemma because someone offered you some meat that had been offered to idols? How many of you struggled with that this week? 
One person, thank you. Only one person was faced. I want to know where you're going to get this food, but no. And yet, if we were a first century congregation, it would be the topic du jour. It would be the thing we're talking about all the time. Oh my gosh, what are we going to do about this? Well, that's because the culture was a big thing. Now it's not a big thing. And so there's passages of scripture talking about uh, meat offered to idols. And you're like, what? This is boring. Why is this talking? No, no, there's something very cultural happening there. One of the things that we see about Paul, who wrote this, is sometimes he would actually accommodate the culture he was in because he wanted to reach them with the gospel. If you remember, Paul's a guy who said, look, I, I'll do anything. I'll be anyone. I'll say anything if I can get to the gospel. That's, that's all I care about. That's my main focus. So, for example, he was talking with Timothy one time. He said, Timothy, I want you to go with me on this journey. Oh, yeah, Paul, I can't wait. Well, listen, we're going to go to an area that's filled. The whole region is filled with Jews. Oh, Paul, thank you so much. I'm so excited. And we're going to take them the gospel. Oh, Paul, I am so thrilled to be your sidekick on this. I'm going to help you out so much. Okay, one thing, Timothy. uh, These people are Jews, and we don't want to offend them. And you're not a Jew, Timothy. You were born a Greek. And so uh, I'm going to need you to have to get circumcised. And Timothy said, hey, what? (laughs) Now, wait a minute. Do you see elsewhere in Scripture where Paul says you must need to be circumcised? No, he wrote an entire letter saying you don't have to do that. What is happening? What is happening is Paul is saying, look, it's about the gospel, and if this area here, it's an important deal to be circumcised, let's do that and just take that off the table. It's kind of like when we go to Haiti or Ethiopia, and we ask some of the ladies on the trip, hey, could you wear ankle-length skirts? Well, where is that in Scripture? Nowhere. But we're going into a culture where that's important. And they, there's some things that we are bringing from our culture that they, they hear things differently. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to hinder us talking about Jesus because of the way that you're dressed. And so, of course, it's not a rule, but it's a cultural specific thing. There's some cultural things at play with this verse that we dive into. And something else that we need to understand is we always want to look at unclear scripture in light of clear scripture. I don't know if you've ever read the Bible and you go, I don't understand this. There's lots of the Bible I read that I go, I don't understand that, but that's not where I get hung up. I go to what I do understand, and that helps me with the things I don't understand. There's a lot here that's unclear. In fact, in another letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he actually gave them some guidelines in 1 Corinthians 11. Here's how women ought to publicly pray and prophesy in church. They should wear this. They should dress like women is basically his point. So this is confusing to me. In one church, he's saying, when women prophesy, they need to do this. And in this church, he's like, yeah, I don't want women to prophesy at all. Let's look closer at this verse for a moment. I don't know if you notice in the same paragraph, it it describes uh, men being commanded to raise their hands when they pray and women being forbidden to braid their hair, wear jewelry, or expensive clothes. So before I started preaching, if you recall, Kevin prayed. Question, men, how many of you failed to raise your hands during Kevin's prayer? Let me see your hands. No, it's too late now. Nice try. Well, God said, raise your hands. You don't do it. I said, raise your hands. Okay, I'll raise your hands. Shame on you. Ladies, any of you wearing a wedding ring this morning? Got one? How many ladies are scared to raise your hands at this point? (laughs) Anyone with braided hair? Any of you ladies braid your hair today? Okay. Any of you wearing an outfit that cost more than $5? Okay. Shame on you. Shame. 
if this is an amazing display of consistency that people say this, oh, well, Thomas, but that, that, that's cultural. But the next sentence, not cultural. Well, how do you know that? Where did you jump to that? But here's the part that I think really trips us up. There's a phrase here, exercise authority. People go, oh, see, a woman can't teach because, well, Thomas, what you're doing right now is you're exercising authority, and, and, and so a woman can't do that. Well, here's what's challenging. That phrase, exercise authority, is actually one word. Now, I want you to guess how many times this one word appears throughout Scripture. Take a wild guess. You guys already know stuff, right? One time. In fact, we didn't even know what the word meant because we can't figure that out from the Bible. So we had to go to the culture around and say, where is this word being used elsewhere in documents? And, oh, okay. And what we came up with was this word means to domineer or to usurp authority. It means to, to take something that's not yours. If you're running up on stage during the Grammys and you grab a mic, you are exercising authority. You are usurping there. Now, you put these two words together, to teach or to exercise authority, they're actually linked in a Greek figure of speech called a hendiadis. It's where you take two words and put them together to, to, to connect those words. For example, if I say, don't eat and run, you understand that I'm not saying, don't eat. Oh, and also, don't run. Like, I'm not, those aren't two separate things I'm telling you. What I'm saying is what? Don't eat and run. You're going to spill it on yourself. You're going to hurt your stomach. Don't eat and run. So what's happening here is you take these two things together, and Paul is saying, do not uh, teach in a domineering way. These aren't two different things. Paul is saying, I don't permit people to teach in a domineering way. But here's where it gets more confusing. Paul begins his conversation talking about women. Hey, I want the men to do this. I want women to adorn themselves. I want them to do what's proper for women. But then in verse 11, he switches and says, let a, a woman. He switches, plural, to one. He doesn't want this one woman to teach in a domineering way. Who is she? I don't know. But remember, the context of this letter is Paul is addressing a sp the spread of false teachings. There was a cult in this city of Ephesus that worshipped a Greek goddess. And, and a lot of women who, before they came to Christ, were a part of that because it's what you did. This cult had theology like this. Well, you know, Eve was actually created before Adam was, and so we should worship Eve. They also said this. They said, you know, Eve ate the fruit first, so she actually smarter than, than Adam. She gained all that wisdom and knowledge. We should worship her as a, god of, a goddess of wisdom. This was bad theology. Paul literally says here, I am presently not allowing a woman to teach. Now, many scholars believe that the women in the city had been influenced by this cultic theology. And Paul is saying here, hey, they need some time. They need to be quiet for a while. They need to learn. They need to get back on track with good theology. So at the present time, they aren't teaching. Now, I know that I may have confused this, but I really think the next verse is going to clear all this up. So the very next thing that Paul says, very simply, women shall be saved through childbearing. Now, now doesn't that make more sense now? So good luck with getting to heaven, ladies. Work on that. No, I, I'm not mocking God's word. I'm just saying it's difficult to understand. What does that mean? This is one of the most confusing verses. And here's what I don't want to do. I don't want to undermine your trust in God's word. But I want to be adult and I want to be honest. There are things we just don't understand. And I want us to be careful building our theology off of a word that appears once in Scripture or over a couple of verses that seem fraught with interpretive difficulties. Got to tread lightly. 
And so here's what our elders have done, and I've so appreciated This is one of the reasons why I wanted to come here. One of the ways our elders have understood this passage is that Paul is saying, women should not teach with authority that is not theirs. So in our church, for example, we believe that the final teaching authority in our church rests with our elders. I'm an elder, and then we have some elders. So that's the final teaching authority. And as long as women are teaching with the permission of and underneath that authority, that is great. Not only something we like, but something we encourage. So when Pastor Susie preaches, or this summer, Lord willing, when, if bon Pastor Bonnie returns to teach with us, or whenever Sarah Tynan leads our baby dedication up here, or whenever we have Jillian or Corey leading us in worship, they're not usurping authority. They're leading and teaching with the authority they've been given under our elders. Now, Pulpit Rock next year will celebrate, uh, or maybe this year, 70 years of life. Isn't that right? crazy? And when it was founded 69 years ago, we didn't have women pastoring or preaching or being ordained. But what we did have is people who said, wherever Jesus goes, I'll go. And so before I even got here, Pulper Rock had already begun to have women pastoring and preaching, gave space for them to be ordained. Now, there is a restriction that we see. I'll mention it here because you might have a question. We, it seems to us that God limits that role of elder to men. This is a question I have for Jesus. Jesus, you broke every cultural taboo when it came to women. You pushed the needle so far, it's amazing. So why, when it came time to pick all your disciples, did you pick all dudes? That's my question. I don't have an answer for that. But he did. And the passages of Scripture we see that talk about elders seem to refer to them being men. And so right now, this is kind of, as we're on this journey, that's where we're trying to live. But I will tell you this one thing about our elders. Hear this. We are trying to figure this out. How can our leadership as elders be enriched by the wisdom, insights, and contributions of women? And our elders recognize the arrogance of thinking that we can lead Christ's church effectively with only male voices at the table. We're still figuring this out. But I'll tell you this, wherever we go from here in the future, we remember that unclear scripture is interpreted in light of clear scripture. And there is a wealth of clear scripture that shows us no reason why qualified women should be prevented from teaching and leading here. So let me close with where God's going, I think. Here's the, there's the ending part. The way it will be one day. You know, how's the story end? When unleashed to use the full range of their giftedness, women are being powerfully used by God to build this church. It seems like after the resurrection, God just accelerated his plan to obliterate the curse. And we're getting back to the way God wanted it to be. All believers are filled with the Holy Spirit without respect to age or gender or social status. All believers are being called to use and exercise their gifts. We began this story ruling together in the garden, and we look down the road to the future kingdom to come, and we are all destined to rule together with Christ, men and women. And under the old way of looking at things, under the old contracts, Jewish men had the power. They were granted these religious privileges that women and slaves and Gentiles could not have. Only men could receive the sign of the covenant, circumcision. Now, there wasn't a lot of women saying, we'd like that sign too. But there were women going, well, hey, so, so the men get to be the, the, the bearers of the mark. But now, after the resurrection, baptism replaces circumcision. Who gets to be baptized? Who? Everybody. It's not the, the man's club anymore. It's everybody. The doors are being thrown open. It used to be the priesthood was reserved for only the male descendants of Aaron. But now that resurrection's happened, priesthood is wide open. And we are all priests and believers. And now that Christ has risen, here's the truth. You are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. 
For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And sometimes God says something, and it takes a while to put into practice. So we're practicing the way it will be. We honor, we empower, we release women. We believe at Pulp Rock that not only does God allow women to use their gifts, but he actively calls them to do so. We practice the freedom that under our elders, men and women can function according to their giftedness. And we believe this is not only a desire, it is a must if we are going to help people journey with God and advance the kingdom. Last thing I want to say is a picture. This is my baby girl, Claire. She launches out into the world in a few months. Yesterday she was a baby, and today she is heading out a few months from now. She has dreams of being a part of the story of God and building his kingdom. As a father, I'm asking these questions. What church is she going to find when she walks out that door? What truths will she believe about herself, her kingdom, her God? What role is she going to play in the kingdom story? I don't know. But at the end of the day, I have a longing in my heart for her, and it's captured so well by my friend Brady. I just want to say it again this morning. Brady said, if I were to boil down my desires, my dreams, assumptions, and plans for the type of world that will embrace my daughter, they'd fit into two simple manifestos. Let her be her. Let her be heard. As my daughter is about to be unleashed on an unsuspecting world, I'm trying to, this planet ain't ready. They, I want you to step into your greatness. I want you to be fully and completely her. And I want you to be fully and completely heard. And I'm going to put every ounce of my effort towards supporting that for your life. Because church, we need her to be her and we need her to be heard. And for us to experience the fullness of God, we need to hear his voice shared through all of his image bearers, men and women. So as I pray this morning, I leave you with this question. Each one of us must answer. What can I do to elevate the role of women in my home, in my work, in my ministry, in my church's family. What church will we be? Will you pray with me? Most of all, Jesus, you are always going somewhere. You're always going ahead of us. And you are always fighting back the curse. And you are always pulling us into this future. You are always forgiving guiding and restoring what we break, what we destroy, what we mess up. Thank you for loving us and calling us forward with you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.